0: He e tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, I'm Jen Halregal Welcome to the Sportsman of the Year: A Suburban Philosophy. Just a warning before we get started: some of the language can get a bit tough at times. I am from West Auckland, after all, and we also talk about some stuff you might find upsetting, and some stuff you will hopefully find funny. So take care of yourselves, okay? <coughs> Once when I was in a bank in Ponsonby around the time of the release of Tremble, one of the tellers said to me, Oh my God, I can't believe it's you. Wow, I love your album. It's amazing. Can I get your autograph? I was a little embarrassed and a bit surprised as I didn't think anyone knew who I was until she said to the other bank teller, Hey, it's Alanis Morissette. You should get her autograph too. After my debut album, It's My Sin, I was given a decent budget to make another album. Basically, Warner Music just let me make a record, and they didn't get involved creatively at all. It was wonderful. All that is left for me now There's nothing my The feeling that one gets After hearing too many voices I had a great budget and I had the best musicians, Martin Nightingale, guitar, Wayne Bell drums and Warwick Hornby, aka Factor, bass. Aussie artist Robbie Rowlands was in the engineer's seat and I had a wonderfully empathic producer, Daniel Denham, who encouraged me to be authentic and brave and laugh at all my bad jokes. After disappearing into the studio with these guys for a few months, I presented my label with an album full of no singles, Tremble. Tremble was an album that came out around the same time as Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. No one had really come across anything like it, especially in New Zealand. Because Tremble was so different and unradio friendly no one at Warners knew how to market it. The best angle opportunity was me being on the cover of More magazine. The cover story headline was Rock and Roll Princess and I was dressed in red tulle. Now I love that picture to bits, I really do, and so does my mum and dad. But the message that image portrayed was incongruous with the tone of the album, so the marketing campaign just confused the hell out of everyone, including me. I've always had one goal when it comes to music, and that is to write great songs. So I've never really thought much about the demarcation between women and men when producing works. Writing and recording have always been foremost in my mind. But the hashtag time's up and hashtag movements are hard to ignore. I've been a musician for 33 years, longer than most of the young women who find the industry so hard today have been alive. Fortunately, I am no longer the starry-eyed girl who thought she could take on the world and win, because sometimes I absolutely lost, and it was very gruelling. I had a lot of experience dealing and communicating with boys and men in my formative years, as I grew up in West Auckland with three brothers, surrounded by a neighbourhood full of lads. I was very much a tomboy and dressed in jeans and t-shirts like my brother's. I was mistaken for a boy on more than one occasion, but I was happy enough in my own skin. On Saturday mornings, I would beg my dad to take me to his panel shop and wrecking yard, much to the chagrin of my poor mother, because I loved being around the car wrecks and the broken glass that looked like diamonds, dented bonnets and the smell of petrol. It wasn't dolls and clothes for me. It was hanging out with the panel beaters, smoko, overalls, pies, roll-your-owns and powdered coffee for morning tea. The prepubescent me always thought I was accepted as I was, and never ever thought that somehow my sex would set me apart. But things did start to change when my hips started to shape up and my breasts appeared. It was obvious I wasn't one of the boys anymore, and from then I remember the stark reality of being shut out of the male domain I had once felt so welcome in. But when I think about it, it wouldn't have made me very happy to stay there anyway. Around the age of 14 I was at a party in Calston and when I went looking for my friend I found she was paralytic drunk and two guys were trying to take her up the driveway to have their way with her I guess. One of my sort of boyfriends at the time helped me and we grabbed one arm and played tug of war with the two guys while she was in the middle flopping from side to side like a rag doll. My sort of boyfriend was punched and it was a very scary scenario. I learned that night that even though the majority of the men in my life were wonderful, there were some who were not, and of this I have always been mindful. Not all men are good, but mostly they are, and that truth has always kept me safe. University was a bit of an eye-opener for this girl from West Auckland. My first experience with feminism was visiting the women's room and the posters on the walls were shouting, All men are rapists! I could never agree with that and said so. Some yes, all no. My lyrics around that time were more socially orientated, confronting the Chardonnay socialists that feigned concern for the unfairness of society, but would, as I correctly foretold in those songs, end up running the country and controlling all the resources. While I studied at Otago in the mid-80s... I became a member of an all-girl band, Cassandra's Ears. There is no way I would be where I am today without the opportunity to get up on stage with the fine woman in that band. The stories I can tell you about being an all-girl band around this time are pretty intense, but my favorite one is when we got kicked off stage in Papakura. Our music was turned down mid-set. Take your money and run, said the manager. I guess it didn't help that we were advertised as a leather and lace all-girls band. We get up on stage ready to sing our songs in earnest and they were probably expecting us to do a strip show. It was our biggest payday ever. I think now that perhaps we were in the wrong trade. After Cassandra's ears disbanded and I went off on a solo career, most of the touring I did was in predominantly all-male entourages. I was always fine with this and don't recall any uncomfortable times with my male cohorts. For a little while I did go through a period of dressing like a lad to ensure none of my female curves were visible, hiding my femaleness because I got a little tired of standing out. But I left the side of me behind after a while because trying to be one of the boys when you aren't one isn't good for your health. I also didn't like being called a rock chick and wanted to change that perception so I started wearing pretty dresses. The reason I didn't want to be referred to as a rocker is because I have always thought of myself primarily as a songwriter and I found labels very limiting. Granted, some of the songs I have written are a bit loud... Manic as a state of mind is a bit grungy and could cause a bit of confusion about my writing style, but the song is about going mad and losing the plot, so it hardly conjures up a soft sweet ditty in terms of musical timbre. When I first signed to Warner Music, it took a long time to record my first album. For a little while, Tim Murdock encouraged me to write with some old dudes he knew from Australia and the US, but I just said, no thanks, I don't want to. And once I was asked to have singing lessons and I said, Why? I like my voice the way it is. And when J.D. Souther, who was producing some of the It's My Sin" album, suggested I get my tonsils out, I said, Why? It might ruin the tone of my voice. I never did listen to anyone who was trying to change the way I wrote music or sang, and when I think about how much easier my musical life could have been if I had been a little more commercially orientated, I do wonder. But then, because I am still releasing music now... It makes me think I always made the right calls in terms of my career. In the end, my label just let me make my album the way I wanted to and believed in me from then on, never asking me to change anything or write with anyone else. When it comes to big, bad music industry stories, I don't really have one because Tim Murdoch was one of the good guys and he always championed my music and looked after me. I was also very fortunate when I signed to my record label, Warner Music New Zealand. My a and guide, Jeremy Freeman, was gorgeous and gay. It was the early 90s when we flew to Australia to promote It's My Sin and meetings were held in a sea of male industry executives. They always wore denim shirts and jeans and it was always very blue. I remember that I always covered up my skin in more volumes of black and Jeremy Freeman wore well-cut colourful suits. We enjoyed standing out. When we toured main centres in Australia promoting the album, we had to share the same hotel room to save costs. We had a lot of fun, and I will always appreciate how much Jeremy shielded me from the tidal wave of blokedom in Australia that probably would have preferred me to wear sexy clothes and be a bit sweeter than I was. So thank you, Jeremy. I lucked out when I got to work with you. I have been to many industry functions, parties and concerts and yes I have met the odd lecturist famous museo or industry pervert but my overt disdain for them must have been a bit of a turn off because they never gave me any trouble. Secretly I always thought I was way cooler than them anyway and I think that was a really good buffer. When the guy from the Simply Red band suggested we get down and dirty at the French cafe or Slash from Guns N' Roses started stroking my arm and asked me if I was keen, I was indignant. I always replied something like, are you kidding? I was invited to this party because I'm a musician and I'm your peer. I'm not interested in you like that. (laughs) They always looked at me like I was an alien after that, which suited me fine because there was never any further discussion on the subject. The scenarios where it got a little seedy were few and far between, and mostly I got to spend time with amazing musicians. David Byrne, Robert Smith, Jeff Buckley, Gene Pitney, Diesel, Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Johnnies, local and international bands playing at Mountain Rocks, Strawberry Fields and The Big Day Out, and many local New Zealand musicians. From my perspective, I've always been treated like a musical equal, and if I wasn't, then to be honest, I never noticed. I was probably a little thick-skinned. Or perhaps it was blind faith, but I have never found myself in a position where I felt out of my depth or in a situation I couldn't handle. In my youthful haze, I could always handle the in-your-face come-ons because I was prepared for them. I have always understood lecturous and stupid male behaviour and have known how to deal with it. What I have found hard, and still haven't come to terms with, is the insidious belief that somehow women are not capable or as smart. So I stay well clear of environments where people aren't very evolved in that department. Unfortunately no amount of blogging, social media banter or legislation is going to change the simple truth that sexism is still everywhere and there is still a long way to go. But I refuse to let it get me down. I just look for ways that I can improve my lot and use my disadvantage to my advantage wherever possible. If I have to work three times as hard to get recognition for my work, then I will work a hundred times as hard because I want to be the best I can. Has a career in music been hard for me because I happened to be born a girl? Maybe. But I'm the one who walked away for a while, no one made me. I believe subconsciously, because I was approaching 30, that what I wanted to do was settle down and have a family. But I would have sneered at you if you'd suggested that to me at the time. Also, Tremble was as pure an art form as I think I could have made at the time. Even though it didn't fire commercially, due to an absolute lack of radio friendly songs and me dropping out of music biz, I wouldn't change a note or a sound. If I'd kept going after Tremble, then I don't know if I would still be recording music, running businesses, loving life and feeling extremely grateful for my lot if things had been different. Had everything been easy and had I had early successes with my work, would I still have the courage and the strength to do what I do now? Was always swimming against the tide nothing but a wonderful blessing? All I know is that I'm not resentful or angry, nor do I feel powerless to change things that I don't like. If anything, I'm very excited about the coming years and I'm free to do whatever I like creatively. So bring it on. Dark blue ocean, stormy greys Swimming in the sea is better that way Being tossed in the waves till your hair begins to fray This episode of Sportsman of the Year was written and performed by me, Jan hal Justin Gregory was the producer and the engineer was Jana Witter. Tim Watkin is the executive producer. You can get the book Sportsman of the Year, a Suburban Philosophy, which comes with a high resolution download or you can get the CD too at my website janhalriegel.com or at record stores and bookshops who are stocking Sportsman of the Year. Ask them for it. You can subscribe to Sportsman of the Year at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Radio Public and, of course, rnz.co.nz forward slash series. Please give us a rating. More people find out about us that way. Thanks for coming along. Enjoy. I belong to the rolling waters I belong to the bubbling seas And you